Dear friends, welcome to the third installment of our series on Russian piano masterpieces. And last time we were doing Rachmaninoff, uh, today we're doing Scriabin, who was a classmate on, of Rachmaninoff. Uh, but of course, he is much less known in the West. He's very well known in Russia, but in the West, uh, he's still a niche composer. So today, Peter Donahoe and myself are going to introduce some of you to this possibly new name to you or maybe uh, tell you something new if you already know about him. And we're going to be concentrating on the piano sonatas. So, uh, as you can see, uh, I'm going to use uh, various pictures here. And most of them will come from uh, Michalo Jus Konstantinos Churlonius, uh, a symbolist artist whom Scraben himself admired. So he went to the exhibition and admired these paintings. So we know that he felt uh, somehow close to this artist. And this is why I mm, in included some of them uh, in my presentation. So Scriabin, there is one reason perhaps why in the West people are not so familiar with Scriabin, because there is an obstacle between us and Scriabin, and that is his philosophy. So I thought I would do uh, five minutes on philosophy just to get it out of the way. Um, and uh, let's see how I can manage this. So uh, the problem with Scriabin's philosophy, uh, that it's basically a kind of mysticism and that Scriabin himself believed that his music was related to this mysticism. He wasn't really, he didn't have a philosophical system. Uh, his library wasn't very big. He wasn't a scholar. Uh, he was reading this book and that book, and he was talking to people um, who was giving him various ideas, and he was absorbing these ideas. He never tried to create a, a coherent philosophical system, and that's the whole problem. So here I put on, on the screen, on the slide for you, some of the sources of, of his philosophy. Very important in this scheme is uh, the Russian symbolist poetry. And some of the Russian symbolist poets he actually knew personally, such as Baltrushaitis, Balmont, and Vyacheslav Ivanov. They were part of his circle. And they uh, believed that the world, the visible world around us, is just a world of symbols, of shadows. And the real world, the realer world than the real world, is the other world. Yeah, so let's start from that. Uh, a lot of ideas they borrowed from German philosophers of the 19th century. For example, Schopenhauer, uh, who believed that music was the most important of the arts. Yeah, music was, was metaphysical. It represented the flow of life. So uh, that's very important. And Wagner is an important mediator here. But without Wagner, Scriabin wouldn't have happened. So if music is the most important of the arts, Scriabin goes a bit further and says, I am going to write a work, the Mysterium, the ultimate work of art, yeah, which will be a synthetic work of art, not just musical, it's going to have all kinds of things in it, such as ballet, poetry, visual arts, even columns of perfume. And then he makes the next step and says that after this work is performed, nothing else will happen. This will be the end of the world. Yeah, the world will dematerialize. He imagines himself as a kind of God who can bring this dematerialization about. So that also goes very well with symbolists with the idea that art creates life. 
Yeah, so you, whatever you do in your artwork can actually affect uh, the real world. So that's one side of it. Okay, that's great. Now, there's also something else that he borrows from the philosopher Vladimir Solovyov, who already died uh, at that point, but he uh, knew his ideas through somebody else, through Serge Trubetskoy. And uh, the idea that you find in Scriabin very often that matter is feminine and spirit is masculine comes from Solovyov. So spirit is Scriabin himself, I'll tell you just a little yeah, before we start discussing it. And then there is this really uh, dark part of his philosophy and it's connected to Helena Blavatsky, uh, the mystic, uh, very kind of odious personality uh, who invented a thing which is called theosophy. She didn't want to call it a religion, but it was a kind of cult. Yeah, so here, you know, apparently she went to Tibet and she was influenced by Buddhism and she created this very strange thing uh, that uh, Scriabin also liberally borrowed from, yeah, such as, for example, his ideas of Satanism and black mass that we're going to discuss today, kind of anti-Christian idea, the idea of Lucifer, um, it all comes from Blavatsky. Yeah? So this concoction, this cocktail of various ideas, don't expect it to make any sense. I think we have to start from this. <laughs> yeah, and you're already gathering yeah, the, the sense that it's very difficult to take it all seriously, perhaps. But we have to think of the times when these ideas came into uh, to fruition. Yeah? And that was the times when people thought that the world was going to end. Well, just like now. So <laughs> perhaps, perhaps now we can understand Scriabin a bit better. Yeah, so people really thought they had these apocalyptic presentiments and uh, Scriabin was just one of them. Yeah, he was not the only one. So uh, from this, uh, I, I, I can only show you a picture of an oriental sage that, uh, that Scriabin had on top um, in, in his study. Yeah, so he was, this, this guy was looking at him askance as he was working. Um, and uh, this is the oriental sage, you know, presumably that Blavatsky, um, Madame Blavatsky met in Tibet, if she ever went there. Yeah, that's, you know, that's not proven. So here we go. Now from this we can have the we can go to the piano sonatas, and you can see there are ten of them. I uh, put them on all this timeline, which goes up, yeah, you know, because uh, Scriabin's ambition is going up. So so my timeline is also going up, and you can see that five of them are spread out, um, and gradually he he finds his his own style by the fifth sonata. The fifth sonata is very important, and then the last five, the late ones are grouped together, clustered around 1912 and 1913, and they're hugely experimental things. Now, uh, you can gather that Scriabin is a kind of composer that can get you obsessed. Yeah, it's the kind of composer that can draw you in. And maybe that's what happened to you, Peter, when you played a few years ago mm. all of these ten sonatas in one sitting. Yes, I did do that, yeah. In fact, more than once, I did all the 10 as a cycle in one uh, concert with, with a long break in between, like a Wagner opera, <laughs> which is a coincidence, isn't it? But yes, the, um, which if, if you don't mind me telling my, my, um, my overall story about Scriabin, which was that I've always suffered from 
um, not really being able to dislike music. Almost everything that I come across I want to play and I love, and particularly when I get into it, as uh, whilst practicing it and performing it, I always um, see more in, more in it every day. And Scriabin I chose as the one composer that I would have to make an exception of, uh, in that um, I, I, in my former life I used to be a professional orchestral player, and one of the pieces that I played in, only once in fact, was the poem of ecstasy of, uh, of Scriabin, which as you can see from Marina's chart was written at the same time uh, almost as the fifth sonata. And because I, I actually really enjoyed the orgiastic nature of the poem of ecstasy um, and the brilliance of it and the immediate the emotional impact of it, I tried to find some solo music by Scriabin that was the same kind of thing. The fifth sonata being the only one I found. The rest of them are not like that at all. And so I learned the fifth. We're talking about mid-1970s here. I learned the fifth and I, I played it quite a lot during that year. Um, and then because I couldn't find anything else, I kind of lost interest in, in the composer as a whole. It was almost like he was shunning me or I was shunning him. Um, and then um, I did my thing in Russia, which was quite a lot, uh, starting in the early 80s. And I was constantly pestered by Russian music lovers to play Skriabin um, because he's very popular in Russia and uh, not really in the UK. Um, not even really outside Russia, but particularly, at least at that time. Um, and I gave way. Around about 15 years ago, I gave way and decided I would, I would really explore Skriabin properly. And it got under my skin, as Marian just said. It's, just, it's very similar to Wagner lovers. You find that you can't stop thinking about it, and it really seriously gets to you and, and becomes obsessive. And because I was learning all his sonata cycle at once, uh, massive amounts of, of learning time and practicing of the same composer went on for months and months. And I, I was told by my wife that every time I came down from my piano room, I'd change my personality. And I, I, I needed a, about two hours to get over it. Um, and I, I suspect that conductors who study Wagner uh, probably feel much the same. Um, and I, as Marina said, I did indeed play, I think it was in 2012 or so, I did um, at least two, uh, maybe three, complete cycles of, of all the sonatas in, in uh, a single concert. And um, it, was, it was absolutely like I'd transformed myself into somebody else by the end of it. Uh, and I, and I, I needed to come down in a way that never really happened with any other composer. Very difficult for me to put Skriabin's music in the same program as any other composer, although I've done it. But it is very difficult to put, them, put him side by side with, with someone else. He is unique, uh, particularly in his later music. And um, as Marina said, yes, I went, I went through this phase. Um, and I, I needed, just as an aside, I needed something as an antidote uh, to try and bring me back to the world that I'd known of music before Scriabin. Uh, and I chose Mozart. And it is actually the reason that I suddenly got, got into Mozart in, in a way that I'd never really done before. And he's dominated everything I've done since. So that's thanks to Scriabin. A very strange pair of bedfellows, really, but that really did happen. Uh, and, and it's a, the honest truth. Um, so that's my story with Scriabin. I, I'm sorry, I talk too much, but I'll... Uh, uh, that, so, just to so set, the, set the scene. So it worked on you? It worked, very much so. And I, and I still love it, very much so. Um, but Mozart was a great um, antidote. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, okay, let, let's have a look at various striking features of, of Scriabin's style. So the first thing that, that you can see is these really extravagant directions. They're not just tempo directions, but the directions, yeah, of expression. Mm. And he starts with Italian ones, but uh, the ones that nobody else uses, yeah, like quasi niente, which means like nothing, yeah? <laughs> so, so quietly, 4P, mm. yeah? That's mm. in the first sonata. Well, with fantastical inebriation, yeah, that's still, I think that's one of the last <laughs> Italian <laughs> ones. And then from the sixth sonata onwards, yeah, the, that cluster of the last five sonatas, he switches to French. I think he knew French better, so he could let himself go uh, quite, uh, quite a bit more. Horror surges up, mixed up with the delirious dance, you know, music, <laughs> panting, and so on. And it goes, uh, it tells you what to do, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, do you, yeah. do you follow them? What, what if you can, yes. <laughs> it reminds me very much of Messiaen. Uh -huh. whose, whose indications are also usually in French, although not always, uh, and very much sometimes difficult to interpret quite what he's getting at. But that's because he doesn't quite know how to put it into words. I think that's, that's mm -hmm. the truth. So it becomes ever more extravagant what he's actually trying to say. Well, Messiaen, of course, was, was influenced by Scriabin greatly. So. Yes, so. And they were both, uh, they had both uh, got synesthesia. Synesthesia, yes. They, so mm. they saw colors yeah, mm. when they heard particular keys. We're, we're going to come back to that in a moment. Okay. Uh, then the next thing, extravagant key signatures. Yeah, yeah, so. I'm sorry, Maria, I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah. but could I give you a, a wonderful example from Sonata Number no. 9 yeah. of, one of, these, um, of one of these indications? Because it just strikes me, as we're going to hear number nine, just strikes me as rather an important one. It's in French, and my French is terrible, but I'll read it out in French and then try and translate it. It says, avec une douceur de plus en plus caressante et empoisonnée. Empoisonné. I think that's how you say that word. And it means with a sweetness that gets more and more caressing and poisonous. Um, which actually sums up Sonata Number Nine. So you'll be looking forward to it now. <laughs> <laughs> but that, it's the most extraordinary thing. What do you actually do whilst you're playing it to conjure that image up? Well, I think I, I think I know what to do, but I can't put it into words. <laughs> well, he's already put it into words. <laughs> well, <yes. laughs> Uh, so, um, yeah, so the key signatures, yeah, I think it, it, it takes that idea from Liszt. Yeah, Liszt uses quite a lot of you know, sharps. You know, if you, if you write extraordinary music about the other world, about transcendence, you have to have six sharps. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's his favorite key, by the way. That's yeah. uh, the key um, which he associated with the color of my background in my presentation. And, and possibly of my dress, one of these colors, yeah? <laughs> yeah. So uh, I wanted to be in F-sharp major today. That's so, applies to Messiaen <laughs> too, doesn't it? He, his favorite key was F-sharp major. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, before, before Scriabin goes into uh, lack of keys, which it starts from the sixth sonata, so F-sharp major is, is the absolute mm -hmm. kind of ecstatic transcendent keys. Then there are these, these polyrhythms, these absolutely crazy things that he writes, which means that one beat, yeah, in one hand you play five notes in the time of nine notes in the, in the other hand. And then it changes into six against nine, yeah, but some of them are missing. And, and it can go even into even more complicated things, yeah, which suggests to me that he wanted to, it to all be very flowing. Mm, very much so. Because I can't imagine him himself counting these things. <laughs> well, that's a very, a very big subject mm. as to how much one, how much a composer is able to do the things that they're writing themselves, and how, and therefore how much one should emulate their lack of ability to do it. 
And it's a very deep subject that, that was brought on by the recording era, of course, because mm -hmm. composers before the recording era couldn't leave behind any record of their inability to play their own music. Um, but th those who, who recorded things in the 20th century of their own were limited by their own performing skills, of course. It doesn't mean that one shouldn't do exactly what they wrote. That's always been very central to the way, to the way I approach everything um, and not to take too much notice of what they actually did. And Scraben, of course, you know, he himself uh, admitted to faking quite a lot. And, you know, at one point he says, I've finally learned the four sonata, now I'm, I'm going to play it properly. <laughs> you know, after having performed it in concerts for many years. Yeah, yeah or uh, in the third sonata, in the finale, he actually changes the figuration. He makes a difference. Yeah. So why do you write it like this then? Mm. Yes. Uh, yeah, so th there is a question also, yeah, of what is written and what mm. he himself performed. Then non-tonal harmony, uh, which we're going to talk about a, a, a bit later about. And, uh, and finally, multi-layered textures. Yeah, I've given you this examples of three hands. Yeah? I remember my son, when he saw sc this score for the first time, he said, what's going on? <laughs> Did he have three hands? You know, so, and each of the hands also playing one, more than one thing. Yeah? So it's actually six things going on together, and that's quite a typical thing for Scraben, isn't it? Mm, very much so. Um, we, we looked at similar things in Rachmaninoff last time, but this is, is quite a different effect, I think. But that's definitely you know, something that always happens. And one more thing that I put up there is the note, I th hope I got it right, uh, it's the note that doesn't exist on mm. the keyboard. Yeah, it's virtual. Yeah. Yes, it's, it's up there somewhere. So that's, the that's, note, that's another yeah, example of how he wants to transcend the boundary. So he writes you a note yeah, that yeah. doesn't exist. So what do you do? Um, you play the top note <laughs> right. and, and hope that nobody can hear the difference between that and the note above it, which actually most people can't. Yeah. I certainly can't. But well, he himself the did the either. same. You will be happy to hear. So. <laughs> right. Uh, Another thing that I wanted to mention is that whenever you listen to Scraben, there is one very good uh, guide to follow. That there are three main types of expression, in, in, especially in medium period, uh, middle period and late Scriabin. Yeah, so one thing is, uh, he himself names it will. Yeah, the will, that's the masculine force. If you take Poem of Ecstasy, for example, it's a solo trumpet that goes up and up like a fanfare. Yeah, so many uh, of, sonat of the sonatas have that. Mm type. Then in contrast to that, it's errors. Yeah, so it's soft lyrical caressing, yeah, and the time stops and you have this feminine theme. And the third one, which is kind of ecstatic flight or divine play, as he uh, himself uh, described it, then that would be quick passages and trills and leaps, yeah, and it's more like a dance. And usually uh, these things map on very well onto the sonata form, yeah? because the usual sonata has these kind of three different uh, groups in, in the exposition, which are contrasting, a masculine, and feminine, feminine, and then possibly uh, something a bit playful at the end. Yeah? So he actually, his forms are quite conventional because he can fill them with his own content, which is absolutely inimitable. So, uh, I just thought we would sort of kind of go through the sonatas in chronological order because it's not possible to do it in any other way to really appreciate the trajectory of how he was developing. So um, the first sonata is associated with a very tragic moment in his life when at the age of 20 he did something to his right hand. And uh, his career of uh, performing pianist was over. He couldn't compete with Rachmaninoff, for example, anymore. 
Uh, and uh, that meant that he had to rethink his options, and uh, these are uh, bits from his diary. Uh, he was praying, yeah, and he composed the first sonata with the funeral march at the end, which is an extremely kind of affecting piece, mm. isn't it? And you can hear um, very much echoes of Chopin's funeral march sonata in there. Yeah, Sh Chopin, of course, is is the, his great idol. Yeah. Uh, it's known. I think he slept with a, with a score of Chopin under his pillow or oh, something really? like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Chopin is is his starting point. Yeah. Uh, and uh, this this idea that he considered himself a disabled pianist, really, that his, his right hand never worked properly. Do you, can you hear this, or can you see it in the score? Is it? I can see what he wanted to be able to do. Uh -huh. I wouldn't say that his disability limited his writing, uh -huh. but it, it's, certainly, it's, it's certainly very obvious that he wouldn't be able to do what he'd written because of his, his injury. And it was an injury he never recovered from in the, in the way that Schumann did. Uh -huh. um, although that hugely influenced his output too, but Schumann's finger recovered from the injury, whereas I, I think Scriabin was always disabled yeah, uh -huh. because of... I'm not even sure what the accident was, but mm -hmm. whatever it was, it, it was very serious to his right hand. Yeah. But is, is that why the left hand is, is playing so much? Could be, could be. Well, you could say the same of Rachmaninoff, though, and he didn't <laughs> have any injuries. So yeah. I, I don't know, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's okay. very easy to read things into it, but maybe, you know, making it fit the pattern mm -hmm. that you wanted to. But um, it seems very obvious that he wanted to have a very large hand, which may well have been something to do with being a colleague of Rachmaninoff, who did have one. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, the music is sometimes really awkward because of the size of the hand that he seems to want you to have. Plus the fact, and this very much reminds me of Ravel. The harmonies also do, by the mm -hmm. way. Um, but the, the way Ravel writes with the two thumbs crossed like that so much. Um, anyone who's played the sonatine by Ravel will know that the first three lines, you spend the whole time like this with your thumbs constantly crossing over as if you're knitting. Um, and and uh, uh, Scriabin is very much like that. In a lot of his music, regardless of which period it's from, mm -hmm. it's always there, this, this kind of overlapping of the hands, which, which of course, depending on your, your uh, individual hands, can produce all sorts of problems for one person that are not there for someone else, and vice versa. Um, and quite a few of them are there for me. <laughs> mm -hmm. But that, you know, that, that applies to all pianists, really. Uh, sonata number two, so this mm. is the one that you're well, going to demonstrate in a moment. If I could just say that the yeah. first movement, which is the, the, it's in two movements of course, but the first movement is the one I'll play, um, strikes me as being perhaps, at one point I used to say it was the most beautiful piano piece I'd ever played, uh, which is probably a, a silly thing to say, but it is phenomenally sensuous and, and beautiful and, and colourful and lyrical. It, well, I'll just play it, shall I? But really, one of the most ex exquisite thing, things ever written. And for the same composer to have written that and the ninth sonata, which is a nightmare to listen to, again, please don't be put off, um, it's just extraordinary to me that, that he could change so much. Anyway, um, sonata number two, first movement. Now, just hold on. I need to yes. find it.
It's a quite an, a heavenly piece, isn't it? Absolutely beautiful. It's interesting that he starts in G-sharp minor and finishes in E major. Um, and, you know, much later than Scriabin wrote that. Some, uh, composers were considering that they should stay in the same key most of the time, but he didn't worry about that. No. He went back into G-sharp minor for the second movement, of course, but we haven't got time to, to hear that, unfortunately. Yes, and he said himself that it was about the sea, yeah, that it was a landscape. And so that was all still before all these crazy, crazy ideas, yeah, when he was still kind of with nature. Uh, now, the third one, uh, here where things kind of started getting interesting. Um, and this is a painting which the critics, by the way, associated with that sonata. It's a painting by Vrubel, and it's the demon. Yeah, so the sonata was heard as being some d demonic, yeah, kind of um, almost melodramatically, uh, dramat dramatic to the point of being melodramatic. So, and people are saying here, well, one of the critics is saying that, uh, it's uh, extraordinarily difficult, yeah, that the difficulties are sometimes inconsistent with the spirit of the instrument. I don't know whether you would agree with that. Not as much as number four, but yes, <laughs> it is basically true. <laughs> and disproportionate for the effect they produce, yeah, that it's too mm. hard for, for the effect that you get from it. <laughs> I'm not going to criticise. <laughs> yes. I think it's a wonderful piece. I, I just, we, we had time to hear some of it, but it's that, that, also has one of the most beautiful melodies I think anyone's ever written in the third movement mm -hmm. of that. But it has this terribly tragic ending that's, that's actually immediately after what appears to be a triumph and it suddenly goes wrong for the last few lines. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a really terrible moment, in fact. One feels mm -hmm. very, um, very sad to have to actually do it in public. It's just so, so terrible for the audience because it's so incredibly ecstatic for a while and then suddenly so down which of number two doesn't do. Yes, I, I think that's why they're associated with the demon, yeah, you know, I, with yeah, the fallen angel. So. Yeah. Uh, and uh, also, you know, apart from being a very romantic piece still, people started associating it with decadence. Mm -hmm. uh, decadence was the, the word of the day at the time. It was not necessarily negative. You know, people were delighted to display their decadence as well. But uh, this, is, this is a very nice uh, phrase that I'd like to quote by one critic that this is an art that has cut itself off from the simple and healthy moods of the masses. One would think it was written during the Soviet time, yeah, but it's, it wasn't, it was 1902. From the broad, fragrant expanses of the fields, meadows, and forests. You've just had something much more healthy in the second sonata, yeah, and here, yeah. Uh, the city, the four walls, refined and complicated dispositions of the top 10,000, yeah, of the elite, this is the sphere to which such art belongs. So this is, you know, people are started to, to sense uh, that something is going on. Now, I just wanted to show this because uh, there is actually a quote from Scriabin himself about how he wanted it played. Yeah, he wanted it to be played by one hand, although I, I guess one, you know, some pianist might be tempted to, hmm. to well, play it. It depends on the size of your hand, doesn't it? Simple yeah, as that. well, he, he, he thought that basically that this sonata, first of all, shouldn't be played by women. Um, although I must say that uh, women have played a, a great role in, in popularizing Scrammer's music, especially in, in the first few years. And his first wife, Vera Isakovich, who was a wonderful pianist, uh, she continued to play his music even after she, he abandoned her with four children. Yeah, so he wasn't very happy about that, by the way. But a lot mm. of people actually liked her playing 
more than his own. And mm. there the, the lot of, um, and, and also there were, there were these students that he had who also played Scriabin, yeah? So it actually, you have to remember that it's not just masculine music, yeah? It's, it, was, it was done by women uh, right at the very start. Well, there's nothing more likely to make women want to play it than the composer saying it's for men, is there? Particularly if they're Russians. Absolutely, Sorry. yes. <laughs> it's a challenge, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. It's throwing down the gauntlet. Yes. Perhaps it was deliberate, who knows? So uh, I just wanted you to hear a little bit of Scriabin himself playing a bit of the third sonata. And this is a very imperfect. It's not as good as Rachmaninoff's piano rolls. The technology for him wasn't so good. So there are lots of things that didn't get recorded there, like his pedal, for example. Everyone was saying, look at his feet. You know, he was doing these magical things with the pedal. That is not recorded. And we're also quite not sh ever sure, you know, how, what tempo it should go at. And the touch, of course, a lot of thing things are lost in this, in this role. But what is so striking and weird about it, what he does with the tempo, yeah, what, what he does with kind of how, how he plays it in this improvisatory way and basically it has almost no relation to what is written, isn't and that? And yet writes in a very detailed way. Yeah, mm. yeah, he, he writes exactly, he writes, he's extremely precise mm. about how he notates things and then he plays them in a completely different way. So that's a, so let, let's just hear a little bit of that. somebody played that to me in the master class I would say well why don't you do what the composer wrote <laughs> why don't you play the rhythms that he wrote why don't you stick to the tempo he wrote and so on it's very often the case it's the same with Prokofiev it's not really so much the same with Rachmaninoff because he was such a great performer but the fact that you're a great composer doesn't mean you're you're going to be uh, not going to be suffering from the same pressures as any other performer, particularly if it's your own music, of course. I think we forget that very easily. Well, interestingly, Rachmaninoff took an issue with this style of performance that mm. people were imitating Scriabin also, and obviously, and he, he was uh, encouraging that. Mm. Um, but Rachmaninoff took an issue with that and, and said, well, for me, Scriabin is a musician, and I'm trying to play the music that he wrote. I'm paraphrasing right now. It's, it's correct in the transcript. You can read it. Yeah, but, uh, and he says, at the moment, everyone has uh, developed this esoteric manner of playing 
Scriabin, which is quite abstruse and basically well, you cannot hear what is going on. No. So many people also complain that you couldn't actually make sense of the music when it's played in this way. Um, mm. Even when Scriabin himself played it. And of course to him it made a lot of sense, yeah, but it doesn't well, necessarily yes. mean that it's just as... I think that's composer's disease, you know. I think mm. perhaps even starting with Beethoven's metronome marks, which don't make sense at all, you know. But then, of course, he was deaf, which has probably got a lot more to do with it, seriously, than, than anything else. But all composers tend to play their own music with a very different approach and attitude to when they, they themselves play someone else's music. It's a very different thing, and mm -hmm. I think it's very dangerous uh, if you're, if you're uh, going to emulate what mm -hmm. the composer does. Just stick to the score. It's always been my philosophy. <laughs> Sonata number four. So another borderline piece, uh, which some of the conservatives still enjoy. Glazunov says it's original, full of intoxicating mm. beauty. Its ideas are expressed with great clarity and concision. But here, Scriabin already finds some of his very famous images, like this flight to the sun. This is how he described the finale. Flight at the speed of light, straight towards the sun, into the sun. Yeah, so this mm. or, it's already beginning. And that's right uh, at the point, 1903, when he starts getting into these philosophies and starting uh, to think uh, about his mysterium. Yeah? So uh, this, is, this is the beginning of the, of the new Scriabin. There's a funny um, anecdote about him living in Switzerland and uh, talking to fishermen, uh, preaching to fishermen on the, on the, lakes, on the Lake Gene of Geneva yeah? <laughs> and to, telling, him about, uh, telling them about socialism. <laughs> yeah, so he was a socialist at that point. So at that point, that was his ideal that he was kind of wanted to fly towards. Could, could, I, could I just mention that number four in particular, uh, but there are many examples in the, in the piano concerto and in the etudes as well, as well as the other sonatas, of, of what appear to me to be the forerunners of jazz. And I mean seriously um, that I don't know whether the jazz composers of the early 20th century knew of Scriabin. I'm sure some of them did. But there's, there's certainly no question that the jazz harmonies that he used in his middle period in particular are very very similar to what you'd hear from American jazz in particular. Uh, and in the, the second movement of the fourth, also the rhythms. The, I mean, it's, it really, it, it almost sounds like I'm being frivolous, but I'm not. It sounds like Oscar Peterson. It's quite extraordinary. Uh, and, the, and, you know, several decades before that style appears to have become very popular. Just amazing. Uh, it's kind of influenced without them even knowing that it was there. It's one of the most fascinating sides of, of Scriabin that, uh, that I can think of, because there's a lot of jazz again in Messiaen, a lot of jazz chords that, uh, that seem to have stemmed from the same source. Of course, yes, Ravel, all the French composers really, but certainly Ravel more than any, I suppose, yeah. And the French influence on Russia and the Russian influence on France was huge in both directions around that time, in all arts, I think, yeah. Peter, I, I was wondering if you could play that little mm. etude, uh, because it comes from the same year as the Fourth Sonata, and it mm. has this yeah, interesting thing about it, that it, it starts with very strange harmonies, but then it resolves them into something which is mm. quite nice. It's almost like salon music. Yes, yeah? yes it's, it's a very intriguing piece, because I think it's the closest that I can think of to Scriabin having a sense of humour. <laughs> which isn't very close. Not much of that, yes. But there is something remarkably um, 
well, appealing about it in a sort of slightly jokey way. But at the same time, although it, of course, predates it, it reminds me very much of that strange music that in the 1950s a lot of horror movies from, the, from Hollywood used to have that was usually played on an instrument called a theremin, um, which um, anticipated the onde Martino, mm -hmm. which, of course, again, is a Messian, um, very much a, a part of Messian style. Um, and, well, I, I've talked for, as long, for longer than the piece lasts, actually, so I'll, I'll just play it. <laughs> yes, it is. Absolutely. It's absolutely unique as well, mm. in his, his, yes. even within his own pieces, never mind anyone else's. Yeah, and of course, beyond the sonatas, there are lots of pieces like that, yeah? Mm. A lot of pieces very, which are very, very short. Very short, So yeah. that, that's the majority of them, yeah? But today we're just concentrating yeah. on the sonatas. So let's go really quickly through the fifth sonata, which is amazing, because you can see it starts, well, it's again six uh, sharps, and it starts, I don't know whether you could just illustrate. And there is then a very long silence, followed by incredibly beautiful music that develops into something utterly wild and ecstatic. Mm -hmm. uh, extraordinary piece. This is the one that I, I mentioned yeah. before that I learned and played a lot in the 70s. Yeah, and so uh, it's connected to the poem of ecstasy, as you already said, and mm. it shares, uh, shares the literary um, text with it. Yeah, it has an, as an epigraph part of the poem that he wrote himself as a program for the poem of ecstasy. I very much recommend that you follow the link in the transcript and read the whole thing, because mm. it's the craziest thing imaginable. Um, and uh, uh, if I, I put, put some, some uh, of the lines here, basically he is imagining himself at this point already this kind of uh, divine spirit, uh, creative spirit, and he's making love to the universe. In the most graphic terms, he describes how he would make love tenderly and he may, would may make love sadistically. And, uh, and it's, it's absolutely sort of incredible erotic poem. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that then, you know, he found his muse, Tatiana Schlötzer, who was absolutely um, adoring him as a genius, was telling him that he was a genius every single moment of the day. And he believed her. 
And this is, I think, the, the, the root, the cause of all this craziness that comes later, because uh, this is what he said, for example, about his poem. Yeah, I have just committed to paper a monologue of fantastic beauty. Yeah, so he, is, <laughs> he thinks that he is an amazing poet as well. Now read that and uh, you might disagree. Uh, so uh, the, the fifth sonata also has this uh, very famous ending, which uh, is probably even more striking than the beginning, yeah, because mm. it doesn't end in any key at all. Mm. And uh, uh, as, uh, as you can see from this rather amusing uh, reminiscence, you know, half of the public didn't understand what happened, why he suddenly ran off the stage, you know, because mm. it just wasn't... I don't know whether you could just... That yes, I can passage, do that. Yeah. It's a shame that there is a pause bar at the end, mm. because what I used to do, which was ignore uh -huh. that pause right. bar, and actually be halfway off the stage before, really? before <laughs> the piano would start resonating. Yes, sir. <laughs> and you do that, and people would go, oh, it's over. <laughs> you know, oh, there's something wrong. <laughs> but actually there wasn't. <laughs> it's... Um, it's very difficult to, to make sense of that ending, particularly mm -hmm. because it's so difficult, mm -hmm. technically, apart from anything else. Um, and it, it, it's, it stems from a gigantic um, kind of ecstatic climax that is tonal, in fact. And then it goes off into the mm -hmm. extraordinary. Kind of into cosmos, you know, flies mm. out. It's worth, worth mentioning just at this point, though. As you can see, it's, it's fortissimo at the end. And there are moments in all his early music where you see fortissimo and fortissimo, and very extreme, loud dynamics occasionally. After number six, as far as I know, he never used anything more than forte. And certainly in number nine, there is nothing that's more than forte. In other words, he wanted the piano range to be much more concerned with the lower dynamics, as did Chopin, and so did Debussy. Um, it's, it's a very interesting uh, aspect of his piano style because it, it means, by definition, that you're exploring much more colours because it's not extremely loud. And it's very tempting at the end of the horrific number nine to be very loud. In fact, I'll probably not be able to resist the temptation, but only for that moment, that climax, which is the climax of what appears to have been a, a, an impression of a nightmare. Um, everything else is very, very uh, subdued mm -hmm. and actually much more menacing for it. So at this point, at the point of the Fifth Sonata, we get uh, already these people like Rimsky-Korsakov wondering whether Scriabin has gone mad. And uh, he thinks it's a wonderful music, yeah, but he's la he laid out the plan of his next work, which is something uh, grandiose and even unrealizable. Uh, generally, uh, he is now into philosophy upon which he builds his works, and as he suffers from megalomania, he has walked into such dense forests that some consider him simply mad. Yeah. Could it be that he's going mad for some kind of religious erotic fixation? Yeah, possibly. So, um, so there is now uh, a separation between the cult uh, of people around Scriabin, who absolutely adore him, and people who just completely reject him. That, that all starts at the Fifth Sonata. And of course, then he makes the next step towards his mysterium, and that's Prometheus. That's the piece that has all kinds of things, the organ, the piano, and also the light show. And this is where his synesthesia comes in. Yeah? I will just show you very, very briefly a little bit of a realization of a light show, Prometheus with a light show, that Scriabin wasn't able to see because there was no technology to produce that at, time, at the time. Thank you. 
wanted you to see how it goes from blue to mm. red, yes? <laughs> At that time they would have used limelight, yes? The, as in the definition of limelight, which is literally that something that you used lime for to produce the lighting in theatre. Well, he had this, this, he had this little contraption with little mm. electric light bulbs, which are just oh, right. pathetic, really. Oh, they okay. wouldn't have done anything like that. So they didn't like really that. have electricity. No. <laughs> it had started. <laughs> it it was just the, the very beginning, yes. Mm. So the Mysterium, just to, to recap, yeah, so he's still thinking about this. He is now thinking that he will, might do a preparatory act first. He's thinking of writing a Mysterium in, in a synthetic language, not even in Russian at first. And then he goes on to uh, produce some Russian version for it. He's, he wants to buy a place in India. He wants to actually buy a piece of land to build this temple and to bring the world to its end. It's, it's, it really starts kind of taking shape in his mind. And the seventh sonata, which comes after the fifth, I haven't made a mistake, yeah, the seventh is a kind of pre-Mysterium piece. So if you want to kind of think of what he want, wanted to achieve harmonically, uh, this is what it starts to happen. So the big climax, <laughs> the end of the world, yeah, is the famous uh, what is a 25-note chord? Yeah. yeah. That's that chord. Yeah. And after it's that, it, it suddenly dissipates. Yeah. And of course, that's very jazzy, actually. If you take it <laughs> away from the, the, its context, it's a jazz chord. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so um, even the symbolist, uh, symbolist poet Andre Bele started mocking him a little bit. Yeah, so uh, saying, you know, describing him in this uh, amusing way, how when he said his little finger touched the Kant mode, the uh, middle finger um, latched onto the theme of culture, and then suddenly, alle op, the index finger leapt over several keys to land on the Blavatsky note. Yeah, so even, <laughs> even the symbolists already, it's a bit getting a bit too much for them. Sonata number six is very different, it's very dark. Yeah, so I, I don't know whether you could just play the very first mm. chord. It's, uh, it's frightening. Yes. And uh, Scriven was talking about the dark forces here. He was even scared of the sonata himself and never actually played it. I wanted to show here that, that the notes in the chord and the notes of the melody are the same now. Yeah, there is no, mm. no distinction between melody and harmony. And when you see at what the notes are, they are the notes almost, yeah, but one of the octatonic scale. And this is why it sounds like jazz, because the octatonic scale is one of the most famous modes in jazz. Mm. Yeah, so mm. it's this kind of scale which sounds always as if it's something supernatural, at least. That, that it does rather indicate that he thought that the, 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 the sonata wrote itself, that he was frightened of it himself and wouldn't mm. play it, mm -hmm. as if it was a separate entity to him, which is very difficult to understand. I know. I know. Mm. Uh, so uh, Sonata 9, uh, I don't know, shall we like, talk about it now? Do you want to miss number 8 out? Uh, I, well, the next one is number 9 after 6, actually. That's, yeah, yeah okay. that's how it was written. Yeah, so yeah. this is the dark one. And this one goes ag against the Mysterium idea. And he felt that he was actually going against his own philosophy, but rather following his artistic 
principle. Yeah, so this is something extremely dark, and this is how he described it to Nadezhda Rimsky-Korsakov, that the beginning is dark forces, in the middle there is a nightmare, and the end there are dark forces again. And he uses the phrase defiling of the sacred. Mm. Yeah, so mm. something blasphemous about that piece. And, but on the contrary, and, uh, you know, in contrast to the sixth, he actually loved it and loved playing it. Mm. And uh, lots of people loved it, Buzoni and Prokofiev. And I've chosen it because I think it's one of the most palatable of mm. the late sonatas. So you're going to hear it just in, in a two minutes time. And uh, in the meantime, I'm just going to finish this, this um, whistle-stop tour. So number eight is again something like a sketch for the Mysterium, so another version of number seven. And number 10 suddenly goes back to nature. Yeah, we had nature in number two. And he talks about it being earthbound. It's, it talks about insects, butterflies, moths. These are all flowers that have come to life. They are the subtlest of caresses barely touching. They were all born of the sun and the sun nourishes them of whole sonata of insects. And you think, oh, well, this is something different. Yeah, it has mm. this kind of nature call there. Mm. But don't be, uh, don't be deceived by that. Yeah, because then he says, on that last day, in that last dance, so he's thinking about Mysterium again, I will shatter into a million moths, and so will everyone else. Perhaps at the end of the Mysterium, there we will no longer be people, but will become caresses, animals birds, moths. Mm. I uh, just wanted to mention that Churlonis also produced a painting where moths are flying towards the flame. And I just think it's so interesting that they had shared the same image. Uh, in, the, in the last sonata that he never became a sonata, which is called Ver la Flamme, towards the flame, uh, it's almost like Scriabin himself is flying into this burning sunlight. And uh, as you probably know, he died very suddenly. He died of sepsis, of blood poisoning. And one can only imagine what could have happened after. Yeah. Would have he uh, just got pressured into producing something or perhaps disappointing his followers and yeah. not being able to produce the Mysterium? Or perhaps doing something like Sibelius did, which is to stop writing music altogether and, mm. and live for another 30 years, yes. which is an extraordinary thing to do, but he did. Um, a lot of people felt that way around that time. It's almost like everything had come to the end, mm. the end of the development of style, the development of, of philosophies and so on. Um, even Stravinsky said that a little bit later. Um, Perhaps that would have happened to Scriabin. And but Scriabin then he cut actually, himself shaving and got sepsis. Yes, yeah. and Scriabin actually said at one point, he said, after all this, there will be just a black line on, on a white sheet of paper. So it's almost like he predicts abstractions. And then you think maybe he's not talking about the end of the world. Maybe he's talking, again, it's just in artistic terms, and it's mm. all a metaphor. But yeah. we don't know. So let mm. us go on now and hear the ninth sonata, the scary Certainly. piece. Just give me, give me a moment. Yeah. <laughs> it is worth mentioning, by the way, that contrary to so many other composers, contemporary composers, uh, particularly in the 19th century, but also the 20th, all the Scriabin sonatas are essentially very short, the longest by far being the first one, which is in four movements. But the second one's in two, 
and uh, third and fourth are also in two. And after that, they're in single movements, the ninth being the shortest of all. It's something like seven minutes for the whole piece. Um, and that was very much a Scriabin, um, a, a, an essential part of his style, I think, for, for everything to be gradually becoming miniaturized. Uh, and so many, as we mentioned before, I think so many of his shorter pieces are so short, as with the, the etude that I played, that it, it, it's almost like he was a miniaturist. But then he wrote an orchestral work like Prometheus or the Poem of Ecstasy or any of his three symphonies, absolutely gigantic in scope. And how, it's one of the questions I would like to ask Marina, how he managed to be such a great orchestrator when so little of his music was for anything other than the piano, which is the same as Chopin, but he was not a great orchestrator. Uh, it, it's, there's something in his imagination, perhaps influenced by Rachmaninoff and, the, and other Russian composers that made him so imaginative with the orchestra. Um, anyway, just, just a few idle thoughts. I don't really know the answer. Sonata number nine, The Black Mass.
Thank you.